So we are in a series in Colossians, and as is always with these series, when I decide we're going to work our way through a book or a letter, you know, I allow myself a certain number of weeks to get through there, and I find that you fall behind really quickly because there's just so much stuff in God's Word, isn't there, for us to learn. And so this morning, I find myself in this situation, I allowed myself six weeks to get through Colossians, and I'm still in chapter one, and this is week three. So at some point, we've got to speed things up, I guess, but maybe not. Maybe we need to be flexible and go with what God wants us to do. This series, uh, I've called it Holy People. It's a journey through this whole letter, as I said. The uh, church in Colossae, uh, as far as we know, it doesn't look like Paul had ever actually been to this church. He didn't start this particular one, um, but he heard some really good things about it. And so he writes this letter to encourage them in their faith. And in there he said, you are holy and faithful people. And there was something his friend Epaphras had said to him that made him um, give them that label. Holy people. And my prayer and hope is that people would say that about us. Not self-righteous people, you know. Not a church that is uh, large with slick programs and good parking and all those sorts of things. Not that there's anything wrong with those things. But above everything, holy and faithful. Holy in the true sense of the word. You know, that we set ourselves apart to live obedient, faithful, loving, joyful, worshipful, fruitful lives. You know, holy in the sense, like we have in our mission statement here, that we are about bringing glory to God. Seven days a week, through our words, through our thoughts, and through our actions. And people would say, yeah, that church, that's what we would say about them. Holy people that exude humility, you know. Uh, holy people that reject pride. Holy people filled with the Spirit more than anything are known for how we love others. They will know we're his disciples by our love for others is what the word says. So still in chapter 1, last week we looked at Paul's strong encouragement. Remember, it was uh, stand firm, don't drift. And that was last week's message. We finished around verse 23, and Paul had just finished saying that his call in his life was to preach the gospel around the world. So he's kind of shifted a little bit of focus now to say, this is what's happening to me. This is what God's called me to do. And so we pick up in chapter 1, verse 24. If you're following along, if you're reading your own Bibles, Colossians 1, 24 is where we're going to be. It's on the screen behind me if you'd like to follow along there as well. So here's what he said. I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. God has given me the responsibility of serving his church by proclaiming his entire message to you. This message was kept secret for centuries and generations past, but now it's been revealed to God's people. For God wanted them to know that the riches and glory of Christ are for you Gentiles too. Gentiles are basically anyone who wasn't uh, Jewish, and so he's writing to a, a Gentile church. And this is the secret. Christ lives in you. And this gives you assurance of sharing his glory. 
So we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom that God has given us. We want to present them to God, perfect in their relationship to Christ. And that's why I work and struggle so hard, depending on Christ's mighty power that works within me. You know, if I was to ask you, um, if you could give me just one word that would describe Paul, I wonder what that word would be. I mean, this guy traveled constantly. You know, the, the world was kind of his home. I'm not sure if he had a, um, any significant base anywhere. He probably did, but he was always on the move for Jesus. He raised new leaders. He uh, argued for a true gospel. He stood up to false teachers. He preached constantly. He suffered beatings, whippings, false accusations, imprisonment, shipwreck, death threats, poverty, hunger, misunderstanding, friends who let him down, and a thorn in the flesh that God wouldn't take away. And through all that, he was the single most important figure advancing Christianity and the church into the world in that time. He got the ball rolling into a worldwide movement that's seen hundreds of millions, we may even be able to say billions of people over the last 2,000 years who have had a relationship with Jesus through the church. I would describe him as a leader among leaders. Who agrees with me? He is one of the greats. You know, we did a Heroes of the Faith series, and we didn't do one on Paul. There was plenty of others to choose from. He was a hero of the faith. And yet, how does this leader amongst leaders describe himself and his calling? You ever look at verse 25? Here's what he says. God has given me the responsibility of serving. Of serving his church by proclaiming his message to you. You know, his calling was to serve. This great man of God sees his primary calling to be a servant. In fact, if that's not strong enough for you, in Romans 1.1, he directly says in there, I am a bond servant. I am tied to Jesus as his servant. As Paul talks about himself, we begin to learn something about what it means to be a real servant of Jesus in church. You know what? Sometimes it's not that pretty. It's not... It's difficult. You know, I get a little surprised sometimes when you hear certain um, streams of our faith. Uh, we might call it prosperity teaching, perhaps. This thinking that if you have enough faith, you can have a life filled with all the health and wealth that you want. You've just got to have enough faith, they say. And certain passages are taken out of context. Sermons are preached that talk about living prosperous lives, prosperous lives that, quite frankly, can turn us into self centered people like faith in Jesus is some kind of self-help exercise or get rich scheme and you know what it's actually the, the opposite to the new life in Christ that the Bible demonstrates and teaches us about Paul's words in that passage say that following Jesus is costly all those words I just said did you notice they're costly and it's hard work it's a narrow path and yet, as we see, it's filled with purpose and ultimately the most rewarding life that we can live. What's Paul's, what Paul's example tells me about being a disciple in God's kingdom is that if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a servant. That's it. You're automatically a servant. Being a Christian is not 
a ticket to wealth and health and a life free of suffering. On the contrary, this new life in Jesus is an invitation to die to self in the, in the, for the sake of the gospel. Jesus himself said in Luke 9, when you follow me, you deny yourself. And then you take up your cross. And he says, that's the way to life. And anything less is a way to loss of life. And maybe it doesn't sound that appealing at first. You know, this is not a very popular thing for a preacher to be preaching. But denying ourselves is the way out of bondage and into freedom. And it's also the path to redemption for the world and to restoring this broken world through healing and wholeness. But it takes people who are willing to die to self. So what does Paul's teaching and example tell us about being a servant? So I've got five things today about being a servant of Christ. The first one is this, that there is suffering involved. Again, these aren't points I like preaching to you. However, there's a purpose to it. Verse 24, Paul said, I'm glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. Glad. There is a real suffering for genuine servants of Jesus. And sometimes it's emotional, sometimes it's relational, sometimes it's economical, and it can even be physical. We know Paul is writing from prison, right? If he didn't, he is. Because right at the very end, in the last two sentences, I think he says, remember my chains. We know that he has been beaten up and whipped. You know, surely no one wants these things. You wouldn't say you're glad to have those things, would you? So who on earth says they're glad to be suffering? Your reason tells us that Paul is not going out and looking for persecution like this. You know, of course he's not. And yet he seems to understand a deep, deep theology of suffering that maybe we haven't yet grasped. And if he is one of the great apostles, if not the greatest, then we need to understand what is he saying? Why would he say that? Paul has an awareness that suffering is part and parcel of servanthood. It comes with the territory of being a servant of the gospel in a world that's going to reject Jesus. For some, of, it's, more, for some it's more obvious. We only need to remember our Christian brothers and sisters in dozens of countries like uh, you know, in Iraq, Natalie. They would probably read that passage and go, yeah, yeah, we, we get it. But here's the amazing thing. There is a maturity and a strength in the suffering that they endure that sets an amazing example for us. Paul sets an example for us. It was in the suffering for the gospel that Paul aligned himself with the one that he was serving. For Paul, his love of Jesus was strong enough to rejoice when he identified with the suffering of Jesus and says, I know what Jesus went through now. I understand I know it's true that Christ suffered and died so we wouldn't have to, but that was for the wages of sin. There's nothing in the Bible that says Jesus suffered and died so that we would never, ever have to do that. It's not there. And here, I think, is what Paul came to understand about suffering. It's often in life that our deepest growth and maturity can come from how we can go through those times. You know, we've been singing about it this morning. I don't know if you noticed. We've been singing about it. 
how we go through it is important. That's where the deep maturity can come from. I'm not saying, church, that we go looking for trials and do silly things, but how we process suffering can be the difference between an emotionally mature person who's more effective in all areas of life and an emotionally immature person who just bounces from crisis to crisis and who struggles through life and has no endurance, is easily triggered and is ultimately not an effective servant for others and for Jesus. There's a, an author I read a lot of. His name is Peter Schizero, and I've mentioned him before. And he paints a typical picture of the spiritual and emotional growth of, of most Christians, right? It begins when we come to faith. We begin a, a, a life as a disciple and move into this inward journey of transformation that we preach about so often. You know, we learn how to deal with sin. We start to look beyond ourselves and we start to elevate others in our life and put them ahead of us and, and love people. And we live a life of obedience and servanthood and we worship and we pray and we understand the Bible deeper. And then inevitably we encounter a serious roadblock. Something comes up in our life. Something goes wrong. Someone lets us down, we have conflict with someone, or life gets difficult, our, our marriage gets bumpy, we lose a friend or a work opportunity, maybe even because of our faith. Things get difficult. And Scazzaro, he, he, he calls it hitting the wall. You know, when we do the cycle, the life cycle of a Christian through discipleship, inevitably we're going to hit that wall. And the problem is that too many of us take one look at how high and difficult and painful that, that wall is to climb, we'll go over it and we run the other way which I get, because pain is pain. You know, it hurts, and most people respond to hurt, or the prospect of hurt, to, our response is do what we can to get out of it or avoid it, which makes sense, I guess. It's a natural instinct, but we don't go through it. We keep bouncing off that wall. We keep bouncing off that wall. We go back to the basics again, and instead of the journey of growth and endurance... And instead of maturity, we miss out on something. In the words of um, Peter Schizero, we're in danger of never growing up and we can remain emotional, he says, infants. Now, he's got this quote that he shared on his social media page months back. I don't say it to make anyone feel guilty or bad about themselves, but he said the scandal of the church is it's filled with emotional children. And I think Paul's trying to help us with this when he says, I'm glad when I suffer because he sees something deeper. The discipline to push through that wall, learning go through, to go through that suffering, learning to pray through those seasons, learning to lean on Christ and what it means to really, really trust him in those times. That can have significant life-changing positive fruit in your life and to the kingdom as well. Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not talking about holding on to an abusive relationship or unwisely approaching dangerous situations. I'm talking about those difficult walls we all come up to in life that we just bounce right off and don't do the hard work that's involved. And being a servant means we learn how to push through. We learn how to maturely do times of suffering. Because we all will have those times. Paul says he's glad 
He sees the potential for good that will come from his suffering and it's really hard to understand, but I think he knows it's ultimately the good that comes from that will outweigh the pain. So James had some words to say on this as well, so let me skip out of Colossians into James for a second. Sorry to be a downer on this, church, but this is important stuff. James 1, starting from verse 2, says, Dear brothers and sisters, when trouble of any kind comes your way, consider it an opportunity. And he says, for great joy. Man, you've got to wrap your heads around that, don't you? Because I don't see great joy when troubles come my way. But I can at least see an opportunity. I can at least see an opportunity. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. That sounds like a great promise. Endurance, maturity, those things are invaluable, church. The beauty of the church is that we have each other to journey through those times together, by the way. You know, this is something the world misses out on. We've got each other to push through, to make it, to grow. I want to be mature in my emotions, in my faith. I want to know endurance. I want to be perfect and complete in as many aspects of my life as possible so I can serve Jesus in a more effective way. I'll find the way through and I'll find the joy James is talking about because I know God has shaped me to be that more complete servant. I think that's the message I'm trying to take out of these, this passage today. This is hard stuff, but can anyone here testify to the truth that Paul and James are talking about? I'm, I hear some yeses. The second thing about being a servant is that leaders are also servants. There's a connection for leaders to know about here. If you're in a position of leadership like Paul was, you are a servant. Servant leadership. For the Christian leader, it's never about power and status or fulfilling my own personal needs. Leadership is a humble invitation from God to serve. When he calls you to leadership, he's saying, I'm calling you to serve. If, you know, I don't care if you're a ministry leader, a small group leader, the pastor of a church, a seminary professor, a famous author or musician, a denominational leader. You could even be the Pope. Christians are servants of Jesus and therefore servants of others in the same way that Jesus showed us. Servant leadership is laying down my life for others. This is where church leaders should stand apart from the temptations of the world to have status and to have power. You know, we see grasping for power around us, don't we? Especially in politics and other places like that. Not so for Christians. Our motivation for leading is for the gospel and our primary motivation is to see all people encounter Jesus and live fully devoted lives for him. We are servants. If you're a leader here today and you're a follower of Jesus, people should be able to point to you and me and say that leader is a servant. And if they can't, we have to rethink it. That person, he or she, puts others ahead of their own desire. You know, they're humble. There's no pride. They're not self-seeking. They give of themselves. They sacrifice. They see the best in others. Leaders never tear others down. They always build them up. In the church, 
Positions of leadership should only be open to those who understand servant leadership, who will work for the Lord without the need for recognition. You know, if there's a job that you have to do and no one sees it but God, that's good and that's okay. These people work in the background. They don't boast about gifts and talents. They see every person around them with the same eyes that, and the same heart that Jesus had. They want the best for everyone and they love seeing people grow and do well. That's what a servant leader is. It's about the other person. When you do well, I am so super happy. To be honest, if you can sincerely do that, people will automatically follow you and you'll just be a leader anyway. Jesus was the ultimate servant leader. His heart was for all people. His anger was reserved for legalists and hypocrites. He didn't live in wealth or luxury. He didn't demand to be the head of the table. He walked and ate and socialized with all the regular people instead of the big wigs. He washed his disciples' feet. His priority was his Father's glory to lay down his life for us, for all people, for us to be restored to relationship with God. That's the Jesus we follow. I don't care if you know all the leadership and organizational theories from all the leadership gurus. You've read the books. You've been to the conferences. I read those books. I go to those conferences too, so I'm not condemning that. But the thing is, if we're not a servant first, the rest becomes irrelevant. I've seen top leader after top leader fall from grace, defeated by pride because the first priority for those leaders moved from serving to it becoming about fulfilling their own needs, their own desires. It's one's primary desire to be humble and a servant first that is the foundation of great leadership. And Jesus shows that. And Paul shows that. You know, um, Billy Graham showed us that. And Rex Rigby shows us that, by the way. And there's a whole bunch of you that if I started naming names, I'd be here for the next 20 minutes that show that. The third thing about being a servant is that it's hard work. We don't like this one either. (laughs) But in verse 29, Paul says, that's why I work and struggle so hard. He works hard. You know, he's not a lazy leader. He's not a lazy servant. These aren't very feel-good points today, are they? Yeah, good. <laughs> I won't spend too long on this verse, but, in, but Paul reminds us that being a servant, it's, it's a struggle. When you're working for Jesus, there's hard work involved, and we actually have to get our hands dirty. We can't sit back and do nothing. Being a servant of Christ means working hard for him in his kingdom. But the key principle for the church body is that we all contribute. We all work hard. The idea is not for a small section of the church to work hard and struggle and the rest to watch and enjoy those benefits. It's an all-in effort. The church is weak when a minority do the work of the harvest. The church is powerful and effective when everybody contributes and works hard. There's a bunch of scriptures that support this idea of a body with many parts and everybody doing their bit, right? Let me just say this church, we have a really high engagement here in this church. I love it. The support for our mission is high, I believe. I love it about this church. We're seeing the fruit because of that. I don't take it for granted, by the way. And I want to encourage every person here, take responsibility for your discipleship and to take a role in working hard as a servant for the kingdom of God. God has gifted you and brought us together for a reason. We are here for a reason. 
It's one of the reasons why I'm saying October the 18th, by the way, remember Hartford Hills dinner? October the 18th, I'm calling us all together. I want to build on what, our, what we believe is a clear vision for Hills Church and how we're going to continue to respond to the call from Jesus to go into our community better and more effectively. And I hope you can come along on that night so that we can, um, in unity, um, be on board together for that vision. October the 18th. My hope is that we collectively and prayerfully consider what God is telling us to do and what our part in it is. Now, I'm not talking about uh, working yourself into burnout. We've all seen that happen. I'm not talking about neglecting your family or skipping holidays or Sabbath days or anything like that. The reason we all play our part is this so, so that no one has to go through those things. Because I'll be honest, church, some people do end up in that trap and sometimes it's when it's not the collective effort of the, of the church body. If everyone does their part in the hard work and struggle, the burden is spread much wider and instead of it being destructive, there's a power and a collective joy in our efforts as we see fruit together and we celebrate together what God is doing. There's hard work to be done as servants. Number four is this. This is a shorter one. The motivation... It's for the gospel and the lost. If you're a servant, your motivation is for serving Jesus, but it's for his gospel. It's for the good news and for those who need to hear it. Verse 28, so we tell others about Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all the wisdom God has given us, and we want to present them to God perfect and their relationship with Christ. So why does Paul do all these things? It's not for himself. It's because his heart is for all people to know Jesus and to be saved for eternity. You know, it's a high calling. That's why he wants to be a servant. That's the mission Jesus has given us. We don't serve like Paul for our benefit or our glory, you know, so that we can be proud of having a larger church or anything like that. We serve because we love people and we love Jesus and we want to put the hands of people in the hands of Jesus. You know, this is the motivating desire of a servant, is to see those hands come together. Lives made new in Jesus is what excites us more than anything here. That's why, you know, Amy, after your baptism last week, I was buzzing for days after that. It was awesome. And I want to see more of that. It's the joy that, and, and the freedom that people find in Jesus and their new, their new life with, with him and, and eternity. That's the motivation, isn't it, to be a servant, serve the king. Number five, God supplies the power you need to serve. Hallelujah. If you're sitting there thinking, it's too much, it's too hard, I don't like the suffering, I don't want the struggle. God supplies the power you need to serve the way he's called you to. It says so in verse 29, that's why I work and struggle so hard and I depend on Christ's mighty power that works in me. That works within me. He depends on it. You know, it's his source. The Holy Spirit is like a power bank inside of you. You know, when you use your phone and the, the battery goes flat, you go looking for that other backup battery and you plug into that and everything comes back to life again. That power bank, the Holy Spirit lives in you and it doesn't go flat. 
It's endless power, you know. If there was a way for the power companies to tap into that, they would make a lot of money. But it's free and it's in us. If you don't think you can suffer through difficulties for Christ, if you find it hard to love others and serve them first, if working hard and struggling for the gospel seems too much, if the lost are not a priority to you, I got good news. God doesn't leave you alone to struggle and inevitably fail. There's a power available if you'll seek it, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. And where is the Holy Spirit? Verse 27, remember he said, Christ lives in you. You can depend on his mighty power, is what Paul says, in you. That's the secret to being the servant for Jesus here in Hills Church, in your workplace, in your uni or your school or your YWAM base or your neighborhood or in your marriage, in your family or in your circle of friends. There's a power for you to be a servant in all of those areas of your life. You don't just have to do it by yourself with your weak, limited, feeble power. We have the power of Jesus in us. I want to be a servant of Jesus like Paul was. It doesn't mean I have to be Paul, by the way. Let me just remind you of that. I don't need you to be Paul. God doesn't need you to be Paul. He wants you to be you. He wants me to be Nathan. He wants us to be ourselves. But the Holy Spirit provides the power to serve your king in all those places I just mentioned. So why don't we just ask him this week? That's how I'm going to finish today. It's a simple prayer. Holy Spirit, come fill us with your power to be your servant. Can I get a raise of hands if you'd like to do that this morning? All right. Let's stand together. What we need to do in these moments is focus on, the, on Jesus. Okay? So I invite you to close your eyes. Uh, if you believe the word is true, then verse 27, and you're a follower of Jesus, it says that he lives in you, church. In you. Jesus Christ lives in you. When you stand there, Jesus Christ lives in you. When you leave here today, Jesus lives in you. When you go home, when you go to your school or your work, Jesus lives in you. And we can depend, according to Paul, on his mighty power to be the servant he has called us to be. We can depend on his mighty power to push through that wall or climb it, whatever it is you need to do, but his mighty power is there. You can lean on him and put your trust in him. The word says you should trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding, lean on his. He'll make your path straight. So Lord, if we want to learn what it means to, to suffer um, maturely and uh, I guess to align ourselves with you and Lord we want to learn to work hard we want to learn to be leaders that serve we want to know what it means to 
struggle together collectively as a church. Because, Lord, you've given us a job, an assignment, to take what we know, the good news of Jesus Christ, and to spread it in this world. For your church to be healthy and and powerful and Lord, to be bringing in a harvest of souls. And Lord, we've seen that happen. I pray, God, for more. And we, this morning, submit ourselves with open hands and say, God, we are your servants, knowing that you live in us and that you will give us the power to to do your job. So change us, Lord, we pray. Change us, Lord, we pray. I just want to pray now, Holy Spirit, that you will just move through this auditorium, that you will be touching all of the hearts here. Everyone, Lord, who's got an open heart to you right now, Lord, you're filling, you're filling, you're changing, Lord Jesus. You're bringing joy in the suffering. That's a miracle in itself. You're helping us to grow up and be Uh, mature servants of Christ. Filled with your wisdom, filled with your power. We stand here before you just recognizing you as our God and our King. And we are your children. You call us sons and daughters. And you've made a way. Just like that song says, you've made a way where there was no way. And we believe, God, you're going to do it again. Thank you, Lord Jesus.